You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Joining us today is Jochen Wormuth. Jochen Wormuth is the founder of the Wormuth Asset Management Firm, his own family office, which focuses on environmental impact and climate change. Jochen is also on the investment committee on the German Sovereign Wealth Fund. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Jochen is brought to you as part of a partnership between the Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Jochen. Thank you, Gino, for having me. So, Jochen, you're uh, very well known in green circles and specifically climate circles, um, not just in Tonic, but I know you're very well recognized in uh, the European community. Can you sort of drop in on when that aha moment um, came to you where you realized like, wow, I have these resources, you know, that either uh, earned or unearned uh, that I'm responsible for. um, And yet that moment where climate intersected with that reality of stewardship and how how it all sort of came full circle for you. Yeah. Maybe the, the first impact in my life was the, the Chernobyl event, the nuclear disaster, where we had a few countries and a few regions taking different decisions. So in my hometown, Mainz on the Rhine, on our side of the Rhine, the kids were allowed to play in the sand pits and in the grass. And on the other side of the Rhine, 100 meters away, it was forbidden. And then my mother survived uh, this period, but many of her friends on the left side of the Rhine died of cancer and one of the closest friends asked for euthanasia, help in dying for my mother. Uh, and on the other side of the Rhine, where government had been wiser and people had been more careful, there weren't as many friends or none of her friends sick. So it was very clear to me that environmental policy could have a huge impact on people's lives and very painful. Happily, the, the woman never asked for euthanasia in the end. She held on to the last breath, but it was uh, a, an early call to action. We then proceeded to, with friends, to demonstrate against nuclear power in Germany and to paint, uh, spray paint uh, slogans like uh, "Petting instead of Pershing. So we had to, of course, learn what petting was. Pershing was a cruise missile that the U.S. was trying to install to defend us against the Soviet empire. Um, but I quickly noticed that we got carried away and pulled away, and I thought that's not going to work much. And so I thought, uh, let's, <clears throat> let's try to do a Bloomberg, as I call it, learn physics, math, economics, do well in life, make lots of money and, and donate it for good causes. And uh, so I think at some point in Oxford University, I was asked by a nice woman on a rainy day if I wanted to donate 10 pounds uh, a month or 1% of my income to Greenpeace. And I said, ah, that's easy. I'm chopping potatoes and it's much cheaper if I go for the 1% option. And uh, a few years later, I... Uh, I had settled in a lawsuit where Deutsche Bank forgot to pay me a large amount of money uh, out of my bonus and became one of the biggest donors to Greenpeace because of that 1% rule that I imposed on myself. And I received the money uh, from this settlement with Deutsche Bank and started investing. Um, and whatever I made in profits by investing, I gave to uh, 
Greenpeace, basically. And then one day I came across Charlie Kleisner, who said, oh, isn't it funny, Jochen, you're one of the biggest donors to Greenpeace, but in your day job, you actually invest in things like oil, gas, and coal. Uh, that sounds strange. And I said, well, why not? I'm doing decent work, and I'm honestly owning this money, and I'm giving it to good causes. That's not so bad. And uh, then my wife, uh, who's a Russian environmentalist, and likes to celebrate her birthdays in Chernobyl, actually, uh, just to remind us of the disaster. She took us to the north of Russia. And uh, in the north of Russia, uh, the oil infrastructure is so old that it's like a like a Durchschlag, like a sieve. There's oil coming out of pipelines every kilometer or so. And in the winter, everything freezes. And the famous spring in uh, Russia is uh, when everything thaws, the ice breaks on the river. And that's the reason people say they don't need shrinks in Russia as they do in New York, because this power of green and, and life and, and bursting ice and uh, is beautiful. Now, in that area, in that part of Russia, it's also the time when the frozen leaks of the winter pour into the rivers. So we visited a river called Pechora, which had about, a, uh, yeah, I'd say 50 centimeters, half a yard of of crudo sitting right on the river. And the locals were busy, you know, couldn't fish anymore. So they were busy digging up the oil from the surface of the river, putting into kegs and, and selling it, a barrel of oil. And we joined them to do that. And after about half an hour, you throw up because oil is very poisonous. And we then they took us to the local uh, O'Connell Cancer Hospital. And of course, the cancer rates when you have crude oil in your, in your drinking water was up. 50 times compared to the average in the area. And then they took me to the local, my wife and me to the local uh, embryo collection and they had all the misformed babies there. And I thought, shit, it's just the same, right? Just like Chernobyl killed my neighbor, crude oil, just to be one cent cheaper at the pump or per gallon in the US or in Russia or in Europe causes cancer and I don't want to be part of that. I really don't want to be part of putting money into something that kills people in a brutal fashion. And that was the wake up moment where we decided, okay, my wife and I, it's about 2011. We said, uh, we're going to help build the Tonic Global Impact Investing Network. And we went on the board of the 100%ers at Tonic and tried to put money across all asset classes, cash, bonds, equities, venture, private equity, infrastructure, real assets, all the way to forests into positive impact on the climate. And uh, yeah, that was a big, uh, big change in our lives. Um, but the most beautiful thing and the reason why I say I'm still a Tonic member is the the babysitting qualities of the hundred percenters. So <laughs> when my kids come home from school, uh, they usually are all over the place, screaming, jumping, and so forth. And once a year, we have the hundred percenters in our home. Uh, I don't know, 40, 50 people. And there's such good spirit, just to good, such peace of mind, such clarity of purpose that the kids arrive from school and they sit down in a circle and it is quiet and in awe. <laughs> and for me, that was the biggest proof that we're onto something here. People really care to do good and if you then go back to like a you know blackstone presentation with people with slick back hair investing in oil fracking or something else and telling me how i'm crazy and so forth uh, you really think wow this is just so much more powerful and this is the future we will combine heart and work and purpose uh, and then i think we'll be able to create a wonderful world where there will be decentralized power for everybody and democracy and no more payments to dictatorships and uh, 
because they sit on an oil or gas pipeline. So it's a, a wonderful world we're headed to. So how is that? Yeah, I'm always curious. I mean, obviously that Chernobyl experience uh, was indelible and so was the trip to, um, to Russia in terms of the oil story that you just shared. How is it actually, well, like, I mean, you've been doing this impact work since then. I'm curious about how is it, it has transformed you since then. So not just in terms of how you've changed your allocation of money, but like inside Yokin, the guy that goes to, you know, at to bed at night and maybe wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning thinking about something like, how is that, how is that person, how has that soul been transformed by doing this work? <clears throat> <clears throat> this is a deep stuff yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So in 2000, when I uh, had gotten money from Deutsche Bank, we did our first impact investment and we, we fell majorly on our face because we faced big competition. Then we started raising money outside and not doing only impact, but lots of stuff. Uh, it was financially extremely rewarding at the time. Um, We always uh, focused on anti-corrupt policies and efficiencies. We're always sort of an impact investor. But I never had the clarity that across all asset classes, we want to do impact. Um, and maybe also didn't have the luxury to be able to say no to many things. And once we made the clear decision, you know, we've been one of the pioneers promoting impact when nobody knew what impact was. Today, uh, lots of people call themselves impact investors, which doesn't still answer the question. <laughs> How does it change me? Um, I do wake up at four or five in the morning. I try to meditate. I try to do some sports, read something, learn something. And then it's still a lot of hard work to um, to get people to trust you with your money and then to invest it wisely. Um, I mean, I, I have to say that I'm not all that sure that <laughs> at first sight I'm that much happier because unfortunately I've also come across people who, you know, I'd invested in Russia for a while and then I came into impact investing in Germany, you'd think, okay, you'll be safe. But unfortunately, I got screwed or we got defrauded by someone in the impact. Uh, you know, we received money from us and we lost a lot of money of our investors' money in this one investment. It looks like we make it back with other investments as you do in venture, but still, the fact that you can get cheated in the impact investing world really is a big pain point in my life. Uh, and, and I think, thinking about it, Basically, when you're in a lawless country like Russia, uh, you know, it's people really care about their reputation. They behave actually better because nobody trusts the, suit, the courts. And when you're in a law and order country like Germany, you can have people who are really crooks running around. So I don't know. That's not a positive story, but that's um, uh, how, how is it? So, uh, so, I mean, let's dig into that for a second. Let's dig into. So, I think you're getting there, but. I think there's still a ways to go. Um, you know, you, you talk about this pain point of loss or you lost people's money. You mentioned that you're maybe not necessarily any happier than you were back then. Um, I mean, those are um, emotional sort of pain points, right? Um, I mean, to some extent. So, and they travel with you. It's not like you can, uh, so I guess where I'm going at is like, I mean, what does, like what mechanically, if you look, look back at what has happened to you and what's currently happening. I mean, um, like what has led to like, gosh, why are you asking yourself, like, why am I not more content as a result of doing this work? 
And why was that painful to lose something that frankly, um, you know, everybody probably could afford to lose, but there's more to it than just the financial part of it, right? So, I mean, let's dig into that. I mean, when like Jochen was going through those experiences, I mean, what's happening to you? Mm-hmm. I think the, the, um, um, uh, well, in some sense, the, the biggest disappointment was sort of in human uh, nature, I guess. When when we're running a hedge fund, long short equities, never mind what, and we turned thirty percent per annum for a decade, you know, we were the the rock stars on Bloomberg and and then whatever TV and yeah, Financial Times, whatever. Uh, and you switch the impact, and they all think you're crazy. They don't touch you and so forth, right? But you do that for ten years, basically, you go nothing but impact, and you we've built, I don't know. In one case, a track record now of 15 years of 20% IR, which is also fantastic. And I think probably for that period, it's still one of the world's best you know, returns you can get. Right? I, I'm a very firm believer that you can get better returns with impact than without impact. It's not that you take less returns, so that's great. Um, but, the, but the pain came from that my core value is that I'm an honest, hardworking guy working for a good cause. And some of the investors who came with me in that investment, they started doubting that. They started doubting whether I really genuinely cared for the good cause or generally did this professionally. And that was hugely painful. So um, if I had if I had stuck if I had stuck with you know large institutional investors who wouldn't give a damn, it would have been easier. These were personal friends and I think in the in the new world of of being really caring and open, you should also work with your friends, but it's also that much more painful, right? And then, I mean, why is that? So, I mean, you know, so do we, let's look at that. So, I mean, what have you sort of learned as you move forward from that on how, how to work with friends and to make it um, more... Um, more meaningful or more awareness around you know the way things can go right or wrong uh, yeah so i think the main the main message is that uh, uh, you know it, it, it takes people lots of courage to go into impact in the first place and sometimes these are not the people that are sitting on billions but these are people who have less wealth and for them the exposure to one investment or, or diversified fund could be larger than uh, than for a large institution. I think looking back, I should have spent more time explaining in detail what the risks are, right? You can make killing and make 10 times the money and they may well do that in the end. That's what I hope for. It looks good now. Um, They could have a 10X or something in the end, but um, at the onset, there's a J curve, which I guess some people weren't aware of that often, you know, the first few years of venture or private equity fund, it actually goes down and, and of course, as the way it works, if you have a loss, it's reported immediately. And if you have a gain, it probably takes you five to 10 years. So that's how it works. And uh, I think we've got to do some education there. And I should have been more careful in educating people. Um, yeah, that's sort of the lesson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you... Uh, so, so, I mean, you've highlighted your your financial returns and um i'm curious about if i mean those financial concerns are or those financial returns weren't relevant for for you in terms of um highlighting or spotting as a reason i mean 
would you be doing anything different in terms of how like you do this work? I mean, is there a part of you that while like you're making and doing this diligence and doing the decision-making realizes that I really wanna go this direction, but just given these factors, X, Y, Z factors, I can't go all the way in that direction. Where So I really wanna go with you and just travel with you on where like, would you really want to go if financial returns were not an issue? Mm-hmm. I think that the main the main thing that's happened uh, um, for me the last on the positive side now the last decade I'd say now yeah, in, in impact investing is that I've really become very crystal clear about what we need to do to actually have maximum impact. So so book like uh, effective altruisms what drives my my wife and me given our wealth, given our networks, given our time, our talents, our education, well, how can we have the biggest impact? That's the question we ask ourselves. And at the moment, it is, on the one hand, whatever, sovereign wealth fund of the German government. It is trying to move endowment-type investments in Europe to get people to invest long-term to stop climate change en masse. It's ventures. And uh, it is some charity in, in terms of Greenpeace and in terms of the Green Party of Germany. But if I and I wake up in the morning, I think what's the most effective way to spend your time and money? And I really think impact investing is it. I really think, uh, and I really think that the return is what will drive the capital to close the climate finance gap. So I really, I'm, I'm very skeptical about charity. And my guess is that 95% of charity has actually a negative impact, well intended, and it sort of buys me good conscience, but it doesn't deliver. I think impact investing delivers both better financial return than mainstream investments and better impact than philanthropy. So, um, so I, yeah, so I, even if I didn't have to care about financial returns, I would care about financial return because I think it, it sort of drives people to to put more money to good causes. I think that's the aim, right? If uh, that makes any sense. Um, if I had no, if I would have to spend uh, no time raising capital, that would be fantastic. Like if I had infinite capital available, then I think uh, I would immediately go to, you know, a forest, um, you know, large swaths of the earth. There's a, about a, a 900 million hectares, almost a billion hectares that could be afforested and we could capture, you know, 10% of global emissions on the spot. The price per ton of CO2 is about six euros per ton. And the externality, i.e., the damage caused by a ton of CO2 emitted, is 640. So, the re- I mean, the, the societal return is factor 100 and more, right? Just fantastic. Or, um, yeah, I would invest uh, to replace all of oil and gas drilling with deep geothermal drilling. There's amazing technologies which we can have within 10 years all over the world, 100% renewably powered, decentral. And I'll probably spend money on. Uh, you know, the, allowing people to have decentralized solar so they have light and internet and education and that lift people out of democracy, out of poverty into democracy. <laughs> uh, that'd be fantastic. And uh, yeah, and, and I would probably, and I'm thinking whether it's worthwhile to go more into politics or influence politics more so we get more blended finance. So there's lots and lots of money out there and lots and lots of problems. But the money doesn't go there. If we had blended finance where the government provides a preferred return to the private sector, that I think is what's needed to to close the climate finance gap. So, um, 
So if I was completely free, I would sort of be the president of the European Commission. I'd say, okay, now we stop we stop putting money into feeding cows and subsidizing oil and gas and coal. We'll take the same money and say, anybody who invests a euro into climate solution, it's matched one-to-one -one by the European Commission, just like the US government did with Israel in the Osma program. And we know the history, right? So it's all worked very well. Match it, give a preferred return, and let market forces work. So... If we only priced externality at full cost, everybody would be immediately become an impact investor and would be done. So that's my... Yeah. So, so I mean, let's talk about just the weight of understanding that that concept of externalities. I mean, the, the reality is that once you start thinking of that way, the world can feel pretty darn heavy um, because you realize how much, uh, how, like how much responsibility is being just pushed off the balance sheet, right? And you're definitely in the minority about, about that awareness because most people think that if it's not on the balance sheet that it doesn't exist. I want to talk about just the weight of that awareness. I'm not even talking about the inability to or the inability to move at the scale that you want to or how much or where to put it. Just talk about the weight of knowing that ongoing damage is being created because of that lack of awareness for you. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah. So um that's what causes me sleepless nights, which I try not to have, I admit, but I sometimes wake up very early. Uh, that I feel I understand the damage that's being done, right? If you just take the 640, that's a third of the global GDP is just climate damage, which we're passing on to our children and grandchildren. And I'm not talking about, you know, the four-year-old digging up lithium or something. Um, so if you look at all of the damages that were being done, it's huge, right? So the whole economic system that we currently have is is... Is, is fake and not correct. And if we properly priced in the damages, then you know we would have a completely different economic system. I'm hopeful and that we'll have one that works very well, even if we priced in fully. Uh, for me personally, it's a, um, yeah, it's a huge opportunity because I've seen I've seen the transformation in East Germany from a planned economy to a market economy. I've known as an economic historian that prior to the 1930s financial crisis, there was no one book account, international accounting standard. Everybody made their own books. So I'm quite confident that we will have risk, return, and impact as the rule of law globally within, I would hope, two to three years. So the European Commission is about to force anybody who wants an auditor, any auditor to uh, to request the plan to get a net zero emission, to request the plan for what's the climate impact. And so it basically is becoming law that to look, you look at all of your externalities. Once that's the case, I think we'll live in such a better place. But of course, at the moment, uh, I wish I could multiply that thinking faster, get more people to understand, get more people behind it. And we're very blessed with Fridays for Futures, Grandmas for Futures, Scientists for Futures, and others who, who are helping us. But more scale, quicker, and passing this message would be amazing. And uh, you, you see, you mentioned you have, you have three children. How old are they? Children are 16, 12, and 8. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I mean, to, to have seen, I think, she, the youngest, she was, I think, five when she went to Fridays for Futures March. Uh, I think they, a friend put on a goggles uh, and went with goggles to the Fridays for Futures mark and say, as long as you're sinking the earth because of raising sea levels, my grades may well sink. I don't give a damn. <laughs> uh, so that was very nice. Um, my children have 
making choices like we told them, would you mind if we donate certain amounts to Greenpeace or the Green Party that would mean that you don't get a house in the future as a retirement, whatever benefit, but this would go for this cause. I said, yeah, that's important. And I, that's so they care. They care down to their own pockets. So that's very nice. Um, Can you walk me through those conversations you have with your children in regards to uh, money and like the opportunity cost? And I mean, it sounds like you're already having those conversations um, uh, a little bit already. Uh, and and walk us through um, why, why you're doing that and also the how. And then also in terms of sort of the outcome that, that you, I mean, you sort of touched on one example, but can, we, can you drop in a little bit more there about the why and the process? Uh, you know, I think we live in a world which is increasingly unjust, where the richer get rich and the poorer get poorer. Of course, in absolute terms, the rich, the poor are getting better off than they were decades ago. But the gap between rich and poor is just huge, and I think it's not sustainable. So, if I had a magic wand and everybody would actually have to pay taxes, from my point of view, a hundred percent inheritance tax would be wonderful. Because if I'm born in a, as I was, a Harvard PhD and a Tufts PhD family of you know professor and banker i have so many so many advantages at the beginning of the race why do i need another big buck at the end of the race right uh, in reality of course people who've already paid taxes and they want to pass their children you're not going to get to 100% inheritance tax but um, i feel the biggest challenge that my children face is that they know their parents are wealthy and they're not maybe as hungry as kids that, that don't have wealthy parents and uh, so I've, we've told them that, listen, we want you to know that we will pay for you for whatever first-rate education. We'll pay for wonderful vacations with us. We'll make sure you have a home when you, if you need to have a place to stay. But the rest of the wealth that we accumulate, we will put towards impact investing, charity in the end. And you will not inherit that. But you'll be very welcome to manage the money uh, or to do it with impact. Um, you know, that, that sometimes was frustrating to my children. They said, what, you're going to give it all away anyway, so why should I care about, you know, cleaning the trash out? <laughs> so, uh, uh, then we, okay, we explained, okay, this is actually a family home that will keep for a while, and that will maybe the home for the, where we see our grandchildren, so we should care about that. Uh, and I think they, I think they like the idea that they have to work, make their own way, make their own success. But I think the most impressive thing is that they agreed to donate significant funds to the political parties or the Greenpeace. Um, even if, you know, I said to them, okay, that could impact your personal inheritance in the end. And I said, yeah, this is important enough. So that was very encouraging and uh, very proud of them. And are both there, you, both you and your wife are on the same page in terms of that process. And, and, and I mean, how, like, how does it physically happen? I mean, all five of you in the room at the same time? Or are these just like one-off informal conversations? So I'm just sort of curious about the process. I know um, more and more people, I mean, I'm a, I, I, I have a young child as well. So obviously I just have a personal interest in how these conversations typically go in the process. I mean, of course, <clears throat> in reality, I think family life is far more difficult than anybody ever admits. <laughs> so we have lots of challenges. Uh, we try to, uh, follow the example of a family called that I heard the other day, 10th generation wealthy family in Switzerland. And they were asked by the moderator, how did you pass the wealth from one generation to the other? And uh, he said, well, we have been uh, 
I think it is a Jewish family, so we've been kicked out of our home country three times. We have been expropriated twice. We've been robbed twice. And we figured out the only way to pass the wealth along is to pass the values at the dinner table. That was very powerful. So we tried to have dinners together at the same time every evening. And we try to share what we care about and we talk about and the challenges, the upsides. And I am very transparent with how things go. Some people think maybe I take too much of the troubles home at times, but I also hope to put success home. Um, and in terms of the wealth, the um, I think it's a bit difficult to make sure the kids don't become don't show off, right? So, in honesty, uh, today probably we are thinking that we we have created a beautiful home for to receive tonic members and to show the world that you can do well and do good. But probably for the health of the children living in a 150 square meter um, home, which is uh, fully geothermal powered and has zero emissions and is modest, is probably much preferable than having a 150 square meter living room only to receive guests. So uh, it's a bit of a, a stretch that we're doing there. Um, having met with Pope Francis, you know, who lives in this uh, Santa Marta. Uh, youth hostel, if you like, and meets us for breakfast and lunch and dinner and doesn't do any fancy stuff. I think I have a long way to go to to be more modest. Um, I think that's a value that, I mean, it's not that, you know, I don't collect Ferraris, but we did collect a bit of Teslas trying to do good. But I think we could, we could uh, be more effective being a bit more modest. In terms of the asset allocation, I think our kids start to understand. I think they will end up with simple assets, which is basically a home that will generate uh, the sustainable homes that generate some rental income while they're studying. And once uh, we are not in need of any income from the houses, then they can have it in the future. So that's that's the simple assets that they get to understand. Um, amazingly, my son is already doing lots of business himself, so he knows how to use international networks. He, yeah, speaks English, German, Russian, uh, and therefore is able to, whatever. At the moment, he does sneakers mainly, or he rents properties or lets out properties, but it's really quite good. <laughs> so, that, so that's been sort of an ongoing conversation, I know, in tonic. I mean, you mentioned the word modesty. Some people have um, reframed that in terms of like, what is enough, right? Um, and it's a pretty hot recurring conversation within, especially the 100% tonic group. Um, you know, I mean, it brings people alive and it, it comes up in a lot of different uh, capacities, varieties, and it looks alike, um, sort of a lot of different things. And your term modesty sort of touches on that. I mean, it's sort of its cousin, right? Uh, you know, to some extent. I'm curious about how, when like you think of that enoughness, um, if, is it just you alone or do you feel like your peers uh, in, in Europe are also um, thinking of this as well? In terms of like this? Yeah. Um, no, I think that the, I mean, first of all, the, in terms of my wife, I'm very blessed, I think, with someone who, you know, who's, uh, yeah, was, um, well, maybe she's a bit unhappy with me wearing 25-year-old shoes, I have to admit, so she would prefer if I buy a new pair a bit more often. But generally, you know, we really don't care 
or find it actually quite amusing if you have you know friends or business friends who you know fly in with a gold plated uh, helicopters or something that really is not a but that's easy right that's just say okay that's nouveau stuff i think what's um, also interesting is we've many got many europeans who sort of live low profile but in fact they hoard everything and they don't share so so it's uh, in in germany and in uh in Holland, it's not very fashionable to display your wealth, but yet they're very, very wealthy and they don't maybe share the wealth. So, um, I see. Why is that? I mean, why do you think that? So, I mean, Americans definitely have this impression, I think, that, I mean, Europeans are a very giving, collaborative, sharing um, sort of you know, community uh, as a bunch of states or as a bunch of countries. Uh, so, but is a reflection of history uh, of experience that has led you to um you know or sort of curious on like on the why on why if they are hoarding why are they hoarding hoarding i mean i think that as i'm just saying i think there are different reasons to appear modest one way to appear modest is to not attract the jealousy of your neighbors and be able to continue to hoard the other one is to be modest because you think <laughs> it, it just doesn't it just uh, doesn't give me much I'm, I could be I could get much more out of a of a 15 minute meditation or a good book or you know yeah. I mean we don't really need much to be happy I think it's uh, quite simple if you have a you know if you eat as if it was your medicine and if you get some healthy sports done and you get some love and care I think and some yeah so we don't need much I think um, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to I mean, one of the biggest challenges I've had in my life is that to my mother, the um, uh, the wealthy people in her village were the ones that conservatives were running the village and the city became the SS Nazi leaders. And then the, even though the Americans were able to raise their arms and find the tattoos which had SS and find them, they were kept in the administration in West Germany. So my mother found in 19, I think, 90. 45 years after the war that her PhD father in Germany, the director of the Institute celebrating whatever it was, his 80th or 90th birthday was found out to have been an accomplice of Mengele in Auschwitz, you know, castrating people or sterilizing women or testing how long they survive in cold water. So uh, we have a horrible history in Western Germany of not having cleaned out the Nazi history. And uh, for mother then, uh, the guy who were driving the Mercedes was a Nazi, right? And so every time I become very wealthy, uh, I sort of go, oh shit, I got to go poor again quickly because otherwise I'll be a rich guy who's an evil guy. Mm. And I think I need to get over that and say, um, you know, actually you can be wealthy and use the wealth for good causes because I can see the tremendous power that you have. So with, I don't know, if you like a ridiculous amount of 300,000 euros, I was able to double the election budget of the Green Party in Baden-Württemberg and now for 15 years as a Green governor in Baden-Württemberg, the heartland of German politics. So, so, so money is extremely powerful. And I think to hoard it and to use it for good cause is what I want to do more of. And I want to get over my chip on the shoulder that my mother will not love me because I'm wealthy. It's okay to be wealthy and, and do good with it. But that doesn't answer the question, what's the, what's the reason in Germany? I think Germany or Europe... Um, the reason I, I was born in Boston, the reason I chose to be European in the end 
is the experience of uh, of Bush uh, senior attacking Noriega, his former employee at the CIA, with uh, with helicopters in Panama, and there was a, the rockets flying in a night sky hitting the the presidential palace, and admittedly the well, the, 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 the grandmother of my girlfriend was affiliated with the Korsky helicopter by family, so you can see that's okay. But they said, yeah, give it to them, boys. Give it to them. Well done. Take him down, man. Well done. And I landed in Europe, and, uh, and my grandmother heard on the radio that bombs had fallen in Panama, and her hands started shaking, and her eyes started tearing. And, you know, I, I felt the big difference between America today and, and Europe today is that the Europeans have had two world wars on their soil and that therefore for, there is the, these were big equalizers. Right? All of German wealth has basically been destroyed for many, many people. I think the average wealth in Germany is like 50,000 euros, while in Italy it's 300,000 euros. Um, yeah, so people are, they've been equalized by the war, right? So I think that's, uh, you yeah. And on the other hand, people are more jealous than they are maybe in America, right? In America, someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos are heroes, and, but, but here, you know, they're, they're seeing as the incarnation of evil, let's say, at least Jeff Bezos and Gates or someone like that. Um, so there's more skepticism that power, monetary power could be abused. Yeah. I see. Hmm. Jochen, it's been uh, it's been great to sort of dive in with you. I mean, where where can people learn more about you? Um, we have a webpage called www Vermut, which is my last name, and then am, which for asset management, wermutham.com, and there are some YouTube videos um, and some uh, yeah, you'll find it there. Then there's germanzero.de, which is the uh, NGO to get Germany to zero emissions by 2035 and other initiatives that uh, one can find yeah, online. But 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 maybe, before, yeah, I just feel it was a bit gr grim. I, I do think we live in a wonderful opportunity where more people uh, will become more conscious, more present, will meditate more, there'll be less war, more decentralized power, and we'll live in a wonderful place. Before we know it, we'll be at zero emissions by 2035 and we'll have a happy future. For sure. Thank you, Jochen. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Poetry of Impact podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you are using. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.